0: Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm rejoined by my partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert E. Osgood, Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair of Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And a world traveler recently returned from the Indo-Pacific, which is the priority theater for the United States. It's the pacing challenge uh, that we face uh, from a defense point of view, according to the National Defense Strategy and the National Security Strategy. So, Elliot, welcome back from your travels.
1: Well, thank you. It's good to be back. I am uh, jet lagged, actually. That's what I am. So if I'm a little less coherent than usual, it's not. uh, It's not impending dementia. It's just getting over a twelve-hour flight back from uh, from Tokyo. I was on a. I guess this is what we'll be we'll be talking about. By the way, I I hate the term pacing challenge. I'll rant about that a little bit later in the uh, podcast, but it, it, it makes it seem like it's a race. Uh, when it's really actually more like a wrestling competition and, you know, no, nobody talks about the opposing wrestler as a pacing challenge, but that's, that's just
0: me. Well, they, we'll get into that. So tell us where you were and, uh, tell us what you saw. And, uh, in particular, I'd love to hear from you. We've got a, a presidential election, very consequential one coming up in Taiwan I'd uh, love to hear from you on on how you see that playing out and what the implications are for the U.S. position in the Indo-Pacific. Sure. So
1: this was a uh, trip organized by my uh, colleagues at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here. The delegation was led by very ably by uh, Dr. John Hamry, who's the president of uh, CSIS, uh, with a lot of the heavy lifting done by our China chair, uh, Jude Blanchett, who's really quite a acute observer of China, who we've had on the podcast. Uh, in addition to myself, uh, we were joined as well by Seth Jones, who's the in charge of our international security programs. And then we had a couple of ringers uh, who I think you know from uh, AI, Zach Cooper and uh, Emily Kilcrease from the Center for New American Security. So it was uh, it was a small, but a really pretty high quality group. So we went to uh, we were in Taipei for, I think, over four days, four full days uh, and a couple of half days at either end. And we had a terrific set of meetings, including with uh, President Tsai, who's coming to the end of her uh, total of eight years as president. Uh, we met with the other presidential candidates. We met with uh, the foreign minister, Joseph Wu, with the national security advisor, the vice minister for defense, a uh, whole bunch of academic experts from Academia uh, Seneca. Um, and, you know, along the way, there were journalists and attaches and the American Institute in Taiwan, uh, which is our de facto embassy there. And then from there, we went to Tokyo for a couple of days. And that was really just spent at Yokosuka, at our naval base there, uh, talking to some senior naval leaders, getting some informal briefings about what's going on. And uh, we included two ship visits to the uh, Reagan, which is a whacking big aircraft carrier in port. Uh, and Then a uh, Japanese frigate, which is a much smaller ship. Uh, but really quite remarkable in its own way. It's one of the new class of ships that the Japanese are introducing. So let me, um, where to to begin on all this? Um, I guess the first thing that I would say is, you know, you mentioned the election. I'll say something about that, although that to me is not the most important thing. Uh, You know, the leading candidate remains William Lai of uh, the Democratic uh, People's Party, the DPP. He he is in the lead. He is being careful since he has been pinned as being pro independence. Now, I'll digress for just a moment. One of the things that really I find deeply troubling, um, or maybe I'm troubled that other people don't find it troubling enough, is you know we we the the whole language that we use to talk about Taiwan is wrapped in lies. So you know we we uh, the worst possible thing a a Taiwanese presidential candidate can do is to say that they're in favor of independence because that would stir up the wrath of China and of course of our own government. well of course the fact is that Taiwan is completely independent you know they're not part of China but I understand why we have to say it we have a one China policy in the same way when the president of Taiwan pays a visit to the United States, it's actually not a visit it's a transit because they are actually en route to St. Kitt's with which they still have diplomatic relations. The Chinese, by the way, try to squeeze them out uh, everywhere, including in the Caribbean. And I tend to think that those falsehoods, even though necessary at some level, perhaps in the past, um, are corrosive, and I'll go into that a bit later. So let me just say that I think um, what the competition, all, all four of the candidates go at great lengths to say they don't want to provoke China. All of them go to great lengths to say, we're not going to do anything crazy like declare independence. The other parties say, well, we think we can manage relations with China much better. We have the KMT, actually, the Kuomintang, which had been the party of Chiang Kai-shek, which after all fought the civil war with the the, uh, uh, communists, has probably the closest relations to the mainland, but the others have some relations as well. And they say, well, we can really connect much better with the Chinese. Um, I think that's like halfway true. I mean, I think they, the Chinese have a particular aversion to the DPP. They, they hate them in particular. But the fact of the matter is the Chinese government does want to absorb Taiwan, full stop. Uh, and informal relations continue because there's a lot of Taiwanese business on the mainland. So I think a lot of this is... It's part of the charade that is the story of Taiwan and and China, and which I think is in the long term a source of trouble. I have other things, but what what direction would you like to go, Eric?
0: Well, let's stick on the election for a second and the question of independence for Taiwan. I mean, uh, you and I kind of lived through this a little bit back in 2007-08 with the then president Chen Shui-bian and the potential for a declaration of independence. And, you know, President Bush was pretty forward-leaning president, but he was, you know, quite quite cross with Shen Bien for doing that. And we sort of made our unhappiness known. Now the circumstances, of course, are quite different between, you know, 2007, eight and 15 years or so on. But the DPP candidate was before, pretty loudly pro-independence. He's muted that a little bit. How do you see the election you know, playing out? And what, what would the consequences be of, assume a DPP victory for the sake of argument for a second?
1: Let's, again, let's in the name of precision say the issue is not independence because they are- It's
0: a declaration of independence.
1: It's a declaration of independence. And, and you know, I, I, I know you know that. But, but it, it irks me no end that when our government talks about it, we say, well, you know, can't have independence. Well, they are independent. And actually, we are committed to helping them preserve that. That's the the weirdness of it. It's The question is a declaration of independence. I Look, if I were a Taiwanese, I'd want a declaration of independence too. But like, you know, responsible leaders, I would, you know, bite my tongue and not declare it because, you know, it would, you know, alienate, your most important patron, in the United States, really your only patron um, and quite possibly would trigger more on the part of the Chinese. I, I get worked up about this, Eric, because I think the fixation in Washington with this issue prevents us from dealing with the many other issues that are uh, come into play when we talk about guaranteeing actually substantive, Independence, or let us say, the freedom of Taiwan, because what happens is, and I've I've noticed this actually even in the couple of days since I've been back, I mentioned I was there. You know, the first reaction is, well, you know, whatever that happens, you can't have independence. What, what has happened for the last fifty years is we always go over to the Taiwanese leadership, and we shake our fingers under their nose and say, "Don't you dare declare independence." And that is sometimes um, kind of expanded to include instructions to go sit in a corner and color uh, with crayons and don't bother the uh, the big boys. The, the reason why that's a problem is that that has inculcated into Taiwanese leadership a habit of passivity. So at a time when we really want them to be doing a lot more to defend themselves, when every conversation begins, don't you dare... Guess what? They don't show a whole lot of initiative. And then we're surprised. You know, so in any case, to go back to the elections. uh, Sorry, maybe it's the jet lag, but I'm just ranting and raving more than even more than Uh, usual. Well, no, go for it. (laughs) Um, You know, we it was interesting. The the Kuomintang candidate, Dr. Hu, uh, who we met with was actually probably the most I found someone in some ways the most compelling character. He'd been the chief of police in Taipei, been the um, mayor of, of New Taipei, a uh, very successful mayor for 10 years, he, you know, a fairly charismatic leader, but his basic views, I think, are not fundamentally different from DPP. And, and I think all of them are in the same place. They, they don't want to provoke a Chinese invasion. They know that China is getting more and more dangerous from their point of view. They feel keenly the increasing pressure on Taiwan, and it has increased a great deal. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, and they would kind of like to go back to the status quo, which was, you know, Taiwan doesn't talk about independence. Everybody accedes to this myth that there's one China when there really isn't. And people get on with, you know, their lives and with with making... Uh, with making money. The the danger that all of them face is that she uh, has made it very clear that he intends to have Taiwan incorporated into the mainland on his watch. And the way the Chinese are doing this is they are it's a campaign of unremitting pressure, you know, increasing violations of something called the ADIS, the Air Defense Inform- Information, information zone. zone. Information Zone. Um, you know, used to be that there are three lines um, in the Taiwan Straits. There's the median line, so median, halfway be- between the island uh, and the mainland. There's the 24 mile line and the 12 mile line, which is really that's the s- sort of sovereign territorial waters. But at 24 miles out, you can begin intercepting people. Well, what's happened is the Chinese they've cr- begun crossing the median line routinely. Uh, that that you they did not used to do that. That after happened the Pelosi after visit. The Pelosi yeah. visit. And, and of course, but of course, we haven't reacted to that, and you know, we haven't pushed back on that. We, you know, the, the Chinese do this all the time. They are always pressuring, so they're conducting bigger and bigger exercises. So they're slicing the salami
0: thinner.
1: They are, It is all salami slicing. You know, like seventy-two aircraft up in the air. I think uh, to the east of the island. More and more um, operations around it, a continued diplomatic offensive against the remaining places that have relations with Taiwan, more and more bellicose rhetoric, um, a lot of cyber stuff, a lot of disinformation campaigns. So they're under a lot of they're under a lot of pressure, and not surprisingly, I think the Taiwanese wonder whether we will really come in and bail them out. And of course we go over, we go over and we say, well, you know, are you people really prepared to to fight, to defend yourselves to the last? But of course we've conditioned them not, not to be bellicose. So it's, that, that was actually in many ways, my, my dominant feeling coming out of this. They've, they've had 50 years of uh, diplomatic and military isolation. And it's a big problem by the way, for their military. And, you know, we, we just don't, we, we seem not to get it. So just one last thing. So we, you know, we've begun saying, oh, what you really need is a porcupine strategy. You know, lots of missiles, so you can sink the invading. I, uh, I would just uh, like
0: to point out that my colleagues at CSBA and I have been advocating this for like 15 years. Okay, so it's, it's fine. And I'm
1: in favor of that to a point. But here's the problem invasions not the real right. issue the issue is blockade right. but even that. more to the point but even more to the point the populace of taiwan they so you know we get very critical of the taiwanese for wanting to buy fancy jets and tanks and submarines understood but for the people of taiwan who are not military experts You know, they want to see their own airplanes flying overhead. They do want to see the big pieces of military equipment. And you know what? This is back to our friend Clausewitz. This is all about politics. There's a reason for them to want those things. The, The political reasoning for it is actually, I think, pretty sound. So, you know, ideally you want them to do both. But here's the catch there. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of money. They are increasing their defense spending. They're going up to 2.5 percent. Which historically have been quite low. Yeah, which have been quite low. But they're going north of that. They've extended military service to a year. Uh, All well and good. But, you know, their question is, well, you're going to be with us. So, well, why should they think that? You know, we do have, according to newspaper reports, um, 100, 200 American service personnel on the island uh Marines and special forces training them but of course they never show up in uniform so no time on East you know there you, you see some American tourists with short haircuts and rippling muscles maybe but you don't see people it's in, not the visible
0: presence we have with other East Asian allies it's
1: it's it's you know we don't do ship visits it's idiotic truly idiotic that the officials who are responsible for Taiwan and Washington can't visit. So if you have a deputy assistant secretary of state or of defense who is responsible for our relationship with that island, they can't go there. And you know what? You can't really do business effectively with a place that you can't visit. Ditto, you know, senior military people. I mean, so we've created this Kafkaesque world. Now I'm not saying blow it up all at once. But I, I am saying there are things you can do that will enhance Taiwanese self-confidence, that'll help nudge them to do the things you want them to do, um, which will probably irritate the Chinese. But heck, they irritate us a lot, too, um, which we we don't do. And then, you know, the last, just the last part of this is so this is a military that's been isolated for 50 years. They haven't. Re- I mean, there are some minor exceptions to what I'm about to say. They they have they don't train with other militaries. They can't overtly send a mission, say, to look at a country like Finland, your favorite. Uh, I mean, the Finns are actually a very good model for them because they have a relatively short conscription period. I think twenty years. Year. They just
0: extended it uh, not long ago from four months to one year.
1: Right. So it's so well the the Taiwanese now went from four months to one year. But the point is, the Finns have military service that I think is mandatory service that's about, about that long. But what they have is a very well-developed reserve system uh, with training and stuff, and a very well-developed civil defense, civilian resistance system. Best thing in the world would be if the Taiwanese could send open delegations to Finland and vice versa. And, um, you know, on their own, I wouldn't expect the Finns to to do that. But if the United States can broker something, well, that would be a good thing. So let
0: me let me let me back us up a second, if I could. So just for the sake of our listeners who may not you know, follow this all in detail, you know, we you've made reference to our, you know, one China policy. This is really goes back to the Nixon Kissinger opening to China and the Shanghai communique of 1972, in which both China and the United States agreed that Chinese on both sides of the strait, that is the Chinese in Taiwan and the Chinese on the mainland, believe that there is only one China, but the United States very strongly in its statements uh, suggested that uh, we would only countenance peaceful unification, you know, of uh, the uh, island with the, the mainland. And then subsequently, when we established formal diplomatic relations under the Carter administration in the late 70s, the United States Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which obligated us, we we had had a treaty with the Republic of China that committed us uh, like our treaties with the Republic of Korea and Japan to defend Taiwan An Article five guarantee that was negotiated by John Foster Dulles in the mid-1950s um, after the first uh, Taiwan Straits crisis, or yeah, the Kimo and Matsu crisis, the Taiwan Straits crisis of 54. But the Taiwan Relations Act replaced that guarantee with an obligation, legal obligation under U.S. law to help Taiwan by providing for its self-defense, for them to defend themselves, what role we would play In a contingency over Taiwan was left ambiguous. Now, President Biden has said four times that the United States would defend Taiwan, and his minions have, you know, uh, afterwards, you know, done yes, minister, and said, well, what the president meant to say was that, you know, he adheres to our policy of strategic ambiguity. All of this, I think, may have thoroughly confused the Chinese and left our position actually, uh, actually ambiguous, which is probably not a not a and, and it confuses you know, the not a, too not a terrible thing, I suppose, from the point of view of the uh, PRC. But to to get to the heart of the matter, why should any of this matter to? Our fellow citizens, why do they? Why do they sure. care? I mean, you know, sort of Vivek sure. Ramaswamy has said, yes, we have to defend Taiwan until under the Chips Act we can make all the chips, and we don't have to worry about TMC, which makes, you know, I don't know, sixty percent of the world's, you know, high-end uh, microprocessors, and then we can just let it go to the Chinese. So why does it? Why does it right. matter? So I, I
1: I think that's that's a very good point. By the way, my my advice to uh, uh president biden's minions on this occasion as on a number of others would be just don't say anything just let it hang there it's okay anyway why does it matter um well okay let's proceed from the narrowest things it is true that taiwan is uh this complete powerhouse in the manufacture of chips it is by the way not entirely clear that they will be able to be replaced you know they're having troubles with this facility that they're building in arizona uh, uh, with unions, with finding enough engineers and so on, but I case, that's a long way off. So they are a strategic asset. It, it is, even if we ever get to that point, it would actually be a considerable strategic asset to China to get their hands on that point one point two Taiwan. If you look at its geographical position, uh, not that far South from Japan along the so-called first Island chain, if that becomes part of China, Then from a kind of a strategic point of view, from a kind of a military operational point of view, um, it is a very much of a kind of forward projecting air and naval presence, which will make it very hard for us to maintain a a strong military posture in East Asia. And that includes places like the Philippines, as well as Japan. Uh, A lot of sea lanes run right by there so that you can expect, I think, a ripple effect uh, in terms of endangering our position. For sure, uh, other countries, Japan and the Philippines, A would feel endangered by this. They've made it very clear to us that they want us to be engaged there. If we are, if, you know, if after all the commitments that we've made, including the president saying things, but everything under the uh, Taiwan Relations Act, we don't deliver in terms of helping the Taiwanese preserve their independence, then they have to ask themselves very hard questions about, will the Americans come to our rescue? And my guess is the answer will be, "Mm, we're no longer so sure. And the thing to remember now is that, you know, what are the alternatives? Well, one is you bandwagon with the Chinese. I think that's probably what the Philippines would do. Uh, Japanese may or may not do that. Uh, South Koreans may conceivably do that. That's, you know, they're a major strategic asset too. Let's not forget that. Um, or you go for nuclear weapons because the Americans are not reliable. You know, one of the things we've done is we've taken nuclear calculations off the table, both in this case and in the, uh, Ukraine case. And I think in both cases they applied, you know, countries, either countries are going to think the Americans will be there to guar- help guarantee their security. Or they go nuclear, and if they go nuclear, it's a much more dangerous world. And finally, let let it be said that this is a population of twenty four million people who live in freedom, who want to live in freedom. Uh, the we talked to a bunch of the pollsters; it's very clear they do not want to be absorbed into China. They really don't. They don't want to be part of a, you know, a uh, reactionary dictatorship. You know, that really is now. Gotten pretty totalitarian, so there's a there's a stake for us there, and it'll be a, I think an enormous blow to our credibility around the world, but not just to our credibility, but to the the cause of freedom. And the United States does have a stake in the cause of freedom. Parenthetically, I might add, every single Taiwanese that we spoke to, in government and out, said what you are doing in Ukraine is very important, and. we, you know, we, we are, the United States is backlogged on uh, delivering something like about $14 billion worth of heart military hardware to Taiwan. They said the priority is getting uh, military hardware to Ukraine. That's our, that's our fight too.
0: Although, by the way, it's not clear that a lot of what we're sending to Ukraine would necessarily be. A lot of it is not fungible, right.
1: but but what it, it was, I think, striking to all of us. They would bring up Ukraine, and they would insist it is very, what you are doing there is very very important. It bears directly on
0: our security. I mean, you can take take that in a number of ways, right? So, on the one hand, there is the geopolitical question of U.S. support to Ukraine and how that's read in Taipei, how that's read in Beijing, uh, all of which is terribly important. There's, you know, another kind of element here which is uh, what is what's going on in in Ukraine say about the changing character of of war I mean, the nature of war stays the same of course but you know we're on the you know brink i think uh, most people believe of a massive change in the w- way that war is conducted because of uh, autonomy and uh, uh, artificial intelligence robotics uh, Etc. Um, so, are they looking to Ukraine also for potential lessons to be learned about how they th- how they should array themselves, how they should think about fighting? Again, bear
1: in mind they we have contributed to this. They are isolated. They're, they don't get to have military attachés wandering around the front right. lines. They don't have delegations, at least formally, of military officers coming to visit. I think that their concern about Ukraine is is, is on several grounds. One is American credibility; they, you know, the United States would lose credibility if, after having made the commitments we've made, uh, we backed off. But I think they also think that there is a deterrent value in terms of China that the Chinese, you know, will look at um, what Vladimir Putin did, trying to gobble up a, a weaker neighbor and uh you know all of a sudden finding all the western powers arrayed against him and his country suffering terribly and may think twice so they're you know they're concerned about both sides of it the 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 question the problem i'm i i really do find myself thinking a lot about the problem of, of helping them develop an effective military when we don't when we simply don't interact with them all that much? Because there's no other country in the world that's going to interact with them if we don't.
0: Although my impression is there's much more now discussion than than there has been in, in than there was, say, for instance, when I was under Secretary of Defense.
1: Well, I mean, to, to go from virtually zero to 100 or 200 people is, is, at one level, that's a huge increase. If you go by what is it that's needed, which is, I think, what the, where the... The question that you should always ask is, you know, not look at how much we're doing, but is it enough um, that it's the answer is it's not enough. And we we really do need to do more and we need to do more to help help them modernize. I mean, they don't have, you know, the leadership examples, for example, that we could provide. Uh, they don't have a lot of the technical expertise. We don't. We don't exercise with them. You know, there's just a a whole world of things that we can provide to make them more, uh, you know, a much more difficult
0: target for uh, China to to gobble up. I want to come back to the blockade problem in a minute, but before we go there, you know, even before Ukraine, the Taiwanese had had. Um, the example of the crackdown in Hong Kong um, yes. to galvanize their attention. You were talking about uh, Taiwan's increasing, you know, defense budget. Uh, then you had uh, Ukraine, and then you've mentioned the you know heightened activity in the Strait, uh, the overflights, the um, the exercises post Pelosi visit, in which, for instance, the Chinese Navy essentially surrounded Taiwan. They didn't actually declare a blockade, but they you know, were pretty clearly signaling their capability of actually putting one into place. So looking at all of this, I mean, how did you find this reverberating in, in Taiwan?
1: Well, that, I think probably the most important thing was Hong Kong, uh, because that gives the lie to one country, two systems which had been the the Chinese slogan that, you know, we can have one country, but we can have two different systems and you'll have autonomy and stuff. That was a lie. Um, And, you know, they will not trust, like like most people who are the neighbors of totalitarian countries, they won't trust them and they absolutely shouldn't. Now, whether we'll convince ourselves that somehow you can have a negotiated agreement that, that the Chinese will adhere to, that's another matter. But, you know, if there's if there's one reliable lesson of the last century, I think it is you can rely on the communists to violate their sworn word whenever it's convenient for them. I mean, I think that's a pretty good rule to to take away. Uh, and so it was in Hong Kong. And so it's been in, in many other um, in many other cases. Um, you know the the result of all this is that they are not, I think they are not inclined to ha- really come to terms with China, except in sort of negotiating a modus a modus vivendi, um, and that's and that's about it. But they are not interested in the the, and I think the polling data really does bear this out. There's just no interest in unification with China. I mean there will be you know, there'll be people. I have to say, particularly rich people. Who won't particularly care because you can make a lot more money? You make a lot of money in China or you could um, and they may not care about it, but I think most taiwanese just they don't they don't want that and you know when you go there it's it's a normal free society it's newspapers denouncing politicians, politicians denouncing each other,
0: people living lives as they choose as you know there's a school of thought in Washington, D.C., and it's reflected in some precincts of uh, what passes for the Republican Party intelligentsia and certain precincts of the Congress, that China's the only thing that matters and anything we're doing from for Ukraine is subtractive from our ability to deter and defend uh, Taiwan. Uh, you pretty clearly have indicated that's not the way the Taiwanese see it, which is very interesting.
1: It's, it's not the way the Japanese see it either, by the way. Um, and it's not the way the Australians see it. I mean, it's you know, this is. Uh, uh, I think a mutual friend of ours once used the phrase smart, smart, stupid. You know, when when people people think they're being very clever and, you know, in this case, sort of uh, You know, mini mini matter or uh,
0: too clever by half. Yeah. uh,
1: Or toy soldier Talleyrands. They, uh, you know, they, well, you know, we're going to make be very bold and strategic and make a choice between uh, the Indo-Pacific and Europe. Uh, The only problem is the locals think that that's an idiotic idea. Yeah. And 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 we can rely on the locals
0: to actually understand this better. Their neighborhood better than we do. Yeah. So. But I'm interested in one other theory. So, you know, for a long time, people have been concerned um, that uh, China was going to overtake the United States as the largest economy. Uh, They've been engaged in a double-digit annual defense buildup uh, since late 1990s. In many ways, uh, the capacity that they have for shipbuilding, the, uh, the size of their navy, the anti-access area, denial systems, the investments they've made in military capabilities that make it very difficult for the U.S. military to operate the way it has traditionally operated in the Western Pacific, that that was our big problem. Um, Last summer, Hal Brands and his co-author Mike Beckley, uh, you know, uh, appeared on Shield of the Republic, uh, talking about their book, The Danger Zone in which they argue that actually we are hitting peak China. China is actually about to decline. And lo and behold, you know, we've now seen a China that is really bedeviled by economic problems. Uh, Xi Jinping is relieving a bunch of military commanders for corruption, you know, whether that's part of his domestic political calculus or whether it's got to do with... Foreign minister suddenly disappeared. The foreign minister suddenly disappears for having an affair with a journalist. Um, Well, the, the affair was not the issue. He, they had a, a, a child who had American a citizenship. A child with American citizenship. Yeah, right. that, that was the deal breaker. But but um you've also, you know, you got this question of were these military officers removed for incompetence? Were they removed because it's got to do with Xi Jinping's domestic situation? Or does it does it have to do with corruption in the military genuinely? That was, you know, the the pretext, but is it genuinely concerned about the impact of corruption on the military as the Russian military's corruption has exposed the frailty of its military. I mean, all of this is, you know, swirling around. I mean, do the Taiwanese have any take on this? Do they think it's peak China and that it's on the, and that, I mean, by the way, the argument that it's peak China, it doesn't, shouldn't, you know, uh, make anyone feel uh, warm and fuzzy. In fact, you know, the suggestion by Brands and Beckley is, is this is, might be a more urgent problem, you know, it might be something that happens in 2027, not 2035. So we have 10 years to get ready for it.
1: Right. So if um, just to, to that point, I mean, there, there are two possibilities. One is if uh, China is in deep economic trouble, it turns inward and doesn't have time or energy to make mischief elsewhere. The other is no, if China's in deep economic trouble, uh, they... Try to relieve it by looking outwards and in particular pushing the uh, the Taiwan agenda through some use of force and there are people on, in Taiwan as elsewhere on both sides of that argument uh and I think you know it's only going to be resolved by waiting and seeing what what happens. We met with a very senior economist i can't I'm not allowed to say more than that uh not Taiwanese, but who happened to be in Taiwan. And he argued very convincingly, actually as everybody else did, that the when that the Chinese really are in deep economic trouble, that this is not a uh this is not a transient phenomenon. It was reinforced by a number of people we talked to who had been talking to Taiwanese business people. There are a lot of Taiwanese business people in China who come back and say, This is terrible and we need to move and I've begun moving some of their businesses to other parts of Southeast Asia uh so there seems to be a general consensus you know i'm not an economist much less a chinese economist but or an economist who studies china but it, it just seems to be a whole bunch of things that you know it's an economy that have been driven by investment a lot of it incredibly wasteful uh you know there's like 24 25 million empty apartment buildings in china that's probably an underestimate um there's you know the way to To get out of this bind would be by growing domestic demand, but they're not. And in fact, as stocks, you know, when when stocks uh, take a hit, and when the real estate market takes a hit, as it's been doing, then people actually tend to spend less because they're they're worried about preserving their capital. So that you know, creates something of a vicious circle. They have a tremendous long-term demographic problem. Uh, I think they may have already past the point where their median age is older than ours. And it's going to get a lot worse, a lot faster. Um, Xi Jinping seems either not to understand economics or not to care about it. Um, and so, you know, more and more of this, the economy is now controlled by the state-owned enterprises, the SOEs. So they're, uh, you know, it's no longer a free enterprise. You know, she went on the warpath against the tech sector uh against places like Alibaba. So, you know, all that adds up to them being in deep economic trouble. Now the the problem is, as you say, they with it with the economic growth that they had, they've bought a lot of military hardware. Uh and they have developed their their military quite a bit. And they do, you know, they have some built-in strengths to include a huge shipbuilding industry and, and things of that nature. What we don't no, is something that is i think and this is a lesson reinforced by ukraine is we don't know how good that military actually is I and mean, we have some ways of measuring it looking at exercises but you know how adaptable they really are under pressure
0: how much corruption remains and there may be quite a bit of it they, they don't have a way of knowing either they because don't, they, they don't know they, have, they haven't fought That's since exact. 1979 and the last which was against the vietnamese and they didn't give that good an account of themselves then so and, and look at the top of this you have a dictator and that's the way to think about xi jinping
1: who is an absolute dictator who gets rid of his rivals uh and guys like that usually i think don't get the straight story from their subordinates so he may have a pretty poor idea of what's going on in fact Somebody was quoting, I think, Stephen Kotkin, the great Russian historian, about how do you understand these systems? I think I think he was talking about today's Russia. He said, well, if you can't understand from the outside what's going on, I assure you, if you're on the inside, you know even less. And, and I think that actually may be true um, and true in this case as well. So, you know, as you say, it's not entirely reassuring that this is the case. Maybe just the opposite. But, but, the consensus, for sure, is, seems to be that the Chinese economy is in a bad way. You know they're increasingly you're hearing economists saying actually they the Chinese economy will never catch up with the American economy, uh, which I think is perfectly perfectly plausible. You know, I always felt that some of the some of the projections of uh, Chinese Economic growth and economic dominance is just too reminiscent of the things we heard in the 70s about Japan, 70s and 80s, about how Japan was going to supplant the United States as. Uh,
0: Cold War's um, over, Japan won. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that turned out, of course, not to be true. And in fact, what they may be headed for is something like what, China, what uh, Japan has experienced, where what somebody once called a balance sheet uh, recession, where. You know, Companies have enormous amounts of debt, but they still have lots of cash flow from whatever their businesses are. So they don't invest any of it. They just pay off. They try to pay off their debt. And the result is you'd get this sort of very long-term stagnation, which is what the Japanese have had. But the Japanese started off rich. Chinese aren't rich. And so this could be a lot worse uh, for them. Plus, there's other stuff like you know, the impacts of climate change and ecological catastrophe and so forth.
0: We're going to have to wrap our conversation up in a little bit here. So let me ask you to respond to two questions. One is, how would you grade the Biden administration on this? I mean, I'm not going to say that China's the pacing challenge, but China clearly has been the focus of their national security strategy, their national defense strategy. They're trying to obviously reorient uh, away from the conflicts uh, that have dominated us militarily for the last 20 years in the Middle East. How would you grade, you know, how they've done? And what do you think we should be doing, uh, either that's additive or subtractive from what from what the Biden administration is doing?
1: Well, you know, on the whole, I think this is the area where they've done the best. Um, it's in part, because of a mutual friend of ours, Kurt Campbell, um, who's in the White House and is the coordinator and who is uh, one of these days when he gets out of government, we'll have to interview him. I hope I didn't destroy his career by mentioning his name.
0: But we have other colleagues in the Department of Defense who I think are doing a good job too, and we can ruin their careers as well if we want to do yeah, that. We, well, take them all out. You know, take them I was all. just meeting with one, but I won't even mention Take care of
1: all them. the family's business. Um no, I, I, on this one, I give them credit. You know, For example, the, this meeting that they were able to arrange with the Japanese and the South Koreans, that's a big deal, that you have this kind of truck of the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, you know, The relations between Japan and South Korea are fraught for deep historical and cultural reasons to bring them together. That's an amazing thing. They're uh, alive to the nature of the kind of geoeconomic competition with China. Um, you know, people have this idea that things like sanctions and, and the like are, well, counterproductive of productive because they don't prevent economic growth, but, but that's not really the point. The point is you want to um, protect yourself and you want to, to some extent, undermine the other guy over the long run. So I think they've been good on that. The relations with the key uh, Pacific allies are strong um, and are continuing. I, I hate to say it, in some ways, this is all continuation of work done by the Trump administration, but without any of the, the kind of crazy theatrics. So on the whole, I give them credit. I think on Taiwan, they actually have a lot to do. And I think there the um, the task is going to be to strengthen our commitment to Taiwan, um, to counter you know, this Chinese squeeze and to maintain Taiwanese morale. I mean, the thing I came away worrying about was Could you ever get to a point where the Taiwanese just sort of say, well, the Americans will abandon us. So why exactly do we want to go ahead with this? Let's
0: make the best deal we can.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think of it a little bit as the New Hampshire test. So, you know, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, the state motto, which is on the license plate of New Hampshire, is a quote from the Revolutionary War General John Stark. Live free or die. Now, some countries, it's very clear that they feel that way. Uh, Ukraine. Finland. Although even there, Finland, you know, compromised when it had to. Israel, I suppose. But, you know, that's an awful lot to ask of people, that kind of spirit of, you know, we would rather just. You know, go down, have our cities leveled. In- and I'm
0: not sure you can ever know it before the right, fact.
1: Right. And as as you know, as I said, the, you know, the Finns cut their deals, too. And I think we have not paid adequate attention to this dimension of our uh, strategic relationship with Taiwan. And I do think you want to you want to begin doing things that will give them the confidence to, to then do the things that are necessary to do to defend themselves adequately so that we can then help defend them. Um,
0: I don't know. What grade would you give the Biden administration? I'm in pretty much the same place you are. You know, I think they've done a, a lot. I think our colleagues in the Department of Defense have have done a great deal, both in terms of our posture and in terms of our uh, work with allies that you highlighted, um, and not just you know Korea and Japan. A lot with uh, Republic of the Philippines that I yes. wouldn't have, wouldn't yes, have anticipated. I, actually, you know, that's a that's an important story: the restoration of our ties with the Philippines. We've got some access to bases that, we, you know, we certainly didn't have when I was in the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, the president was just in Vietnam. I mean, uh, and there have been some investments and capabilities that uh, get let us get after some of these operational problems that the Chinese have imposed on us. Um, I guess what I worry about, my fear is that, A, it's not fast enough. You know, it's not fast enough to to the purpose that we have. And second, and I'd really like to hear what you have to say about this, we, we may, you know, I think we may end up being fast enough to deter the Chinese from doing something that is really difficult, right? So the you know, a massive invasion of Taiwan, across 90 miles of water, it's not 90 miles everywhere, that's the shortest point, it's longer in other points of the island. That's a daunting task. It would be hard unopposed. Opposed, it'll be harder. Chinese, you know, have developed some capabilities to make it harder to get there quickly. You know, in time, you know, they may think to do it, but it's still a big, big deal. But the blockade scenario worries me a lot. That one, you know, that one I think is harder for us to react to, uh, particularly as China builds up its nuclear forces and becomes a near nuclear or nuclear peer of the United States. Uh, I mean, look at all the problems we've had with the escalation dynamics in Ukraine. Um, I think you would have this, you know, in the same way in this instance.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And uh, to add to that, I would just say this would be part of a general critique. I mean, first in general, the the administration tends to do the right thing kind of too late. I mean, that's the Ukraine story. There's a broader um, problem with the strategic conception, though that I w- and I would and what I would say there is, you know, this hope that you can somehow revert to a, a world in which we're simply focused on the Indo-Pacific. And it's reverting to my loathing of the term "pacing challenge," um, the problem that the United States faces is we we are in a nastier world than we were re- we were in even ten or twenty years ago. Uh, we cannot exit the Middle East, although we would like to. There is going to be a major and enduring threat to the security and safety of Western Europe, which is a or central and Western Europe, which is the vital interest of ours. And there's the China threat, which is in some ways the biggest one of all. And at the same time, we're not really increasing our defense budget commensurate with that. And we're not, you know, kind of leveling with the American people saying this is we're entering a dangerous phase of international history. Um, It's not always so, but it is so now. And then, you know, on specifically on China, I really worry a lot that here you have an aging dictator, more and more absolute power, which means fewer and fewer dissenting voices and somebody who is completely ruthless, you know, we, we forget what the advantages you get are. If you really don't care that you might lose a couple of hundred thousand soldiers. And I don't think they would care. I, that's just not the, you know, the Chinese communist party's DNA is one of total ruthlessness in the expenditure of human life. And it's a terrible thing, but that, that gives you certain advantages. So yeah, it's really, you know, invasion would be really hard. I I truly believe if he thought he could get away with it, but it was going to cost a quarter of a million Chinese lives, I don't think she would hesitate for a moment. And I think he'd sleep
0: perfectly soundly. Well, on that really cheery <laughs> uplifting <laughs> yeah. note, could, we'll could have just to... be the
1: jet lag talking, but uh, I don't
0: think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, well, we, we are going to have, uh, at some point in the not too distant future, our friend Ross Babbage on, who's, uh, you know, written about this. And, uh, this is subject, obviously we're going to you know have to come back to, I think from time to time, we had our friend Aaron Friedberg on, but this is a, this is a, um, it's not the pacing challenge. This is a, you know, monumental uh, challenge for, uh, the United States of America, as far as the eye can see. Yeah, it's
1: it's not going away, and uh, you know, I I I really do think that we're in a way it goes to the very purpose of this podcast. Um, it's not just a question of managing one or two problems; it's going to be a question of managing multiple problems simultaneously, and that's going to require not only statecraft um, and military muscle, uh, both of which are required, but also, and and here, this is the one thing I would really, I would criticize the administration for, the ability to explain to the American people why it matters. That's the thing that's missing in all this. And it's been missing in Ukraine, and I'm afraid it's largely missing in the Indo-Pacific
0: as well. I agree. And on that note, uh, that brings us to an end of this episode of Shield of the Republic. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh, leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back in the future with more uplifting observations about the state of the world. Thank you, Elliot.